Welcome to Ohio Matters, the Cleveland.com politics podcast. I'm Seth Richardson. I'm Andrew Tobias. And as always, thanks for tuning in. Special thanks goes out to the Cleveland Public Library for helping us out with this podcast. They uh, give us the room. They set up all the equipment. We really appreciate Mike and Brian's work here. They are great partners to have. As always, if you haven't yet... Uh, subscribe to this podcast and when you do that be sure to rate and review us it helps other people find the show and we uh, always you know welcome new listeners into the ohio matters family and if you have any feedback or you want to suggest any guest anything like that go ahead and send that on to my email that's s richardson at cleveland.com again that's s richardson at cleveland.com this week on the pod drumroll please we are going to welcome back guest host Rich Exner. He's the data guru over at Cleveland.com. Rich, how you doing? Pretty good. Thanks for having me today. And uh, what we're going to do this time is we're going to break down the uh, special election that just happened in the 12th district. There's a lot of interesting stuff that came out of there, um, you know, that kind of points us toward the uh, midterms that are going to happen in November. For those of you who don't know and uh, weren't glued to cable news or to Cleveland.com on Tuesday night, Troy Balderson, the Republican in that district, a Republican state senator, ended up squeaking out a uh, the slimmest of victories against uh, Democratic uh, Franklin County recorder Danny O'Connor. Now, the, the results are not official just yet, but uh, barring some kind of miracle with provisional ballots, it looks like Troy Balderson is going to win that race. What's notable about that race is that it is a pretty heavy Republican district, and we still saw Danny O'Connor do really well. Rich, I believe you did a, uh, a full precinct breakdown of basically the whole district. Uh, you want to just kind of start off by telling us what sort of trends you saw in that race? Well, just back up for a bit for people that aren't familiar. This is a, a district that has a portion of Franklin County, Franklin County uh, being uh, mainly Columbus, it has a northern portion of that, uh, so you get that type of people that live both in Columbus and in the suburbs. But as you go further out, it extends over towards Zanesville, Muskingum County, and then it extends north toward um, Mansfield yeah, up and into I, Richland County. And I always thought it's kind of funny, like the sort of assessment of the district, it gets described as suburban Columbus, and for all I know, I've done that too. It's kind of like a shorthand, but like you were saying, I mean, Zanesville is basically like Appalachia light you know, up to Mansfield and that area is very farmland. Yeah. So if you actually look at the district, it's kind of like anchored by Columbus and then it kind of waves off into weird directions pretty much the north and the east. It's one of those districts they uh, wanted to offset some of the more Democratic voters there in Franklin County with, you know, all the rural areas that you just talked about. It's uh, a very oddly shaped it's one. It's a little wacky. Yeah. Well, I think that there was even some discussion. Uh, you know, we, we don't want somebody from Franklin County representing us uh, during the campaign, but there's a reason that uh, Franklin County is in that district is that uh, it, it made other Republican districts Republican <laughs> by, by uh, keeping enough Democrats in that they thought were safe, I, I guess, until this election because that, that district hasn't been closed since, since those lines that we just talked about were drawn um, back in 2000. 11. So what are you seeing in some of the precinct profiles from the voters? Well, it's, it's very heavy. It's not surprising that the, the Columbus area, uh, both the portions in Columbus and, and the immediate suburbs tended to be more Democrat, but to the extent of so, you really see a divide. It's, it's like all these precincts that on the southern tip of the district that darts down into Columbus are 70, 80, 90 percent uh, Democrat in this. But then you get out in some of the more rural areas, like we said, in Muskingum County or, or north of Columbus, and it's 70, 80, 90 percent uh, Republican. I, I guess it's a lot of, I don't know whether it's always been the case, but a lot about what we hear about politics these days is people living in their silos where they're so sharply divided. It, um, there aren't there aren't too many middle of the ground uh, places, or or it seems like it's really dominated by 
you know, strong one way or the other, not, not a healthy debate in between. I think the county probably everybody in America knows about right now is Delaware County. That is the county that is just north of Columbus. It's still a suburban Columbus county, though. Uh, real Republican stronghold. I mean, it's 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 probably venturing into meme territory at this place. Actually, probably one of the best tweets I saw is that Delaware County is the actually the actual Waukesha County of oh, uh, crucial. Ohio. So, uh, but but it was a very crucial um, county to this race. Uh, you know, it's usually a 60-40 district, kind of at best. I mean, Republicans have kind of trended down slightly, but, you know, it went real big for Donald Trump. So let's look at that number real quick while we do. And, you know, this is going to sound like it's a significant victory for the Republicans. You got Troy Balderson, who took 53, about 54 percent of the district or of that county. And you have Danny O'Connor pulling in with 40, basically 46 percent. Um, that seems like the significant factor in what kind of pushed O'Connor almost to victory there. You know, uh, Andrew, who worked in Delaware County for a while, would probably know better than I, but my feeling is that Delaware County is becoming a lot less like old Delaware County by the year. And not just what, you know, we've oftentimes talked, it's the richest county in Ohio in terms of like, you know, economics, most highly educated, but it's also, is it's becoming more suburban Columbus as that happens. So, you know, the, the county line does not change over the years, but as people move out from Franklin County, do they necessarily become more Republican, or does that mean more Democrats are moving in there? Yeah, and it's, it's basically shifting from a rural sort of dynamic to a suburban dynamic, and both those groups tend to be Republican-leaning, um, although I guess in today's Republican Party, it's obviously the suburban voters who are kind of uh, more up for grabs these days. But it's interesting you pointed out how, how close, uh, I guess, so to speak, that the county was uh, on that election, and you go a little bit south into Franklin County, and... I think the vote vote margin, you know, remember district-wide, this thing was within, you know, uh, less than 2,000 votes. But in Franklin County, the, the portion there, it was uh, better than 20,000 in favor of the Democrats. So um, it still was really, you know, that, that portion around Columbus for the most part uh, that versus the rest of the district and kind of balancing out to make this thing so close. Yeah, so it sounds like what you're saying is that uh, Balderson basically did the same as Trump when it comes to the more outlying rural areas, but in the suburban areas, O'Connor would have had to outperform Clinton, right? Right. And I think one, one thing that was surprising what came across in looking at the precincts results that are the unofficial ones now, and we weren't able to do it for Licking County because for some reason Licking County decides that they, they don't report precinct results until they're official. But the, the, the bane of every political reporter's existence now. They, we, we, they hadn't heard of you before Licking County, but you know, you're on their, uh, their bad list now. We're, <laughs> we're, we're calling Licking County out. Give us the results. Yes, give us the results now. But um, in the other in the other counties that uh, in, in looking at the precincts, it's not surprising where 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 um, Balderson carried 60, 70, 80 percent. It's like what you would expect in, in the same way the other way around for O'Connor. But um, what was interesting was, OK, they, uh, basically a lot of uh, Franklin County were these very high Democratic precincts well did they get everybody out is everybody enthused well if you take a look back to the to the last off-year congressional election there four years ago overall the the turnout wasn't entirely different than what we had in a special election which which is pretty high for a special election but i think it was roughly 225,000 votes were cast four years ago and there were just over 200,000 in this one so that's the general in 2014 compared to the special this year right, right? And and that's a non-presidential year because it was more in a presidential year, of course. But in that case, we're we're, we're um, the Democrat ran, ran the strongest, 
it was up a smidget in those places, but it wasn't like overwhelming changes. It wasn't like a lot more people showed up. And, and where abolishing the Republican ran the strongest in those outlying areas, it was down some, but not a lot. But, but there's still, if you look at the election in between, there's a heck of a lot of voters out there, the potential for each, each of them to tap going forward. Uh, but, but it wasn't like... It wasn't like the Republican vote completely dropped off the map from what Trump did in terms of percent yeah. or, or the Democrat in that area. It shifted some, but not by huge amounts. So there's other things going on. Other, you know, other things move this vote, too. Well, I think that's actually really important because there's this kind of outstanding question about to what degree are uh, Trump voters also going to vote for other Republicans, too, right? Like, can he transfer his popularity to other candidates? And so in this case, I, I would be very encouraged if I were a Republican uh, looking at across the state, despite all the reasons why they have to be worried, I guess one of the things that they can kind of hang their hat on is that those uh, Trump voters are hanging with them, which, you know, is uh, obviously a good thing since their party's basically anchored to him. Yeah, I guess it's a question of if holding on to those Trump voters and just those Trump voters is going to be successful going into the future, because, you know, as you know, the guy is underwater in the polls here in Ohio. And I mean, I think some of that did show up as well. That's probably why he had such a close race. I mean, it's, you know, it's easy to say you're going to hold on to just the Trump voters, but is the Trump coalition big enough to carry you to continued success? Or does it turn some of these, you know, what used to be reliably, reliably Republican places, does it start turning them a little more swingy as people are kind of turned off by that brand of politics? Two, two things along that line. So one, one last thing on the, on the turnout and whether people are enthusiastic enough to, to show up. Now, if you compare this special election to, a, um, to the presidential election, where, of course, more people voted, like twice as many voted. But still, if you look at the precincts where I, I kind of honed in on the precincts where, where each candidate got at least 70 percent of the vote. If you look at the 57 precincts where Balderson got at least 70 percent of the vote, 15,000 fewer people showed up to vote than voted, you know, in the presidential election. Well, if you look at the same thing on O'Connor, in this case it was 61 precincts, so basically the same number. 15,000 fewer people showed up to vote than voted uh, two years ago in the presidential election. So both of them hold potential. The voters are out there on their party. Yeah. Uh, uh, so they both have potential if they can, they can get to those people. But then the other thing I noticed, too, overall in the vote, not necessarily on the precinct, but just talking overall, is that uh, a lot's been said about how Trump beat Clinton um, by, I think it was 10.3 points in, the, in this district, and that now this was, you know, basically uh, one percentage point difference now, um, shade under that, that the gap really closed. But when you, when you look at it, remember we had a lot of third-party votes in the presidential election, and you don't have that here. The, the, the Republican vote only dropped off from like something like 52% to 50, where the Democrat, so, so it's not like people left I want to say, percentage-wise, it's not like the Republicans have lost their their hold. They lost a couple percentage points, and the Democratic vote came up about seven and a half points, mostly picking that up out of um, you know the, those, that third-party proportion. So let's look at going into November for uh, just this election. We'll get to some of the other races and some of the uh, broader ramifications in just a second. But what uh, what is each candidate, I guess, you know, from your analysis, you looked at sort of the districts and what they mean. And, and your piece that came out this week kind of details where, uh, you know, each candidate maybe could do better and uh, basically who they need to turn out. Where where are you seeing, like, where does O'Connor need to turn out to win this district in November? And where does Balderson need to turn out to sort of stop any, you know, any kind of upset? If I'm thinking about turnout, if I'm either candidate, I think I'm thinking the time is spent on that where, where you support strongest. So you, if you get 50 people to turn out in a place where it's 80% you, you have a better chance to pick up votes, right? Well, I think that starts at the uh, 
at the, across the street from Ohio State University for, for, for O'Connor because all those precincts, that the way this district's drawn, it almost shoots down like a knife into that section of Columbus from the north. But all those precincts were 70, 80, 90 percent for O'Connor. But the students aren't there in the summer. This is not on campus, but off campus to the, to the east of campus and north of what people familiar with Ohio State North would say Fraternity Row. Those students go back to school in two weeks. So there's some time for a couple of months to try to say, hey, register to vote here instead of, you know, vote, vote here instead of absentee from wherever you might live outside the district. So that, I would think that would hold the potential. You got, you know, you got a campus of 50 or 60,000 students. Just geographically, it looks like maybe a third of them or a quarter of them that live off of campus live in, live in this district. So there's a potential there. And then extending north, um, you know, anywhere in Franklin County is fairly strong, but the, the, there's a whole swath of land going from basically north of campus up to the county line, Delaware County, that um, O'Connor ran incredibly strong. So if you can up those numbers there, that, that works. I know one of the things that I was kind of thinking uh, about going into this election was thinking that it'd be lower turnout. So then they always say special elections are special and it's not that all special elections aren't, or it's not that all elections aren't special. It's special elections are more special than others. Uh, Anyways. So, but the idea is that basically uh, the low turnout, kind of the high intensity of the base voters who do show up to vote for those kinds of things just makes screwy results. Right. Um, But in this case, Having a turnout that's comparable to a 2014 general election, uh, an off year, but still where there's a statewide race happening, I actually don't see any reason why the general composition of the electorate won't basically be the same in November. And so I think that uh, it wouldn't be that surprising to see the results basically be again within a couple of points. And it comes back to then at that, that, at that point about mobilizing pockets of voters and organizing. On the other hand, we're not going to see like the $4 million of money that the Congressional mm-hmm. Leadership Fund and other Republican-aligned groups threw at this race in the last couple of weeks. We're not going to see Donald Trump coming in and, and appearing with Troy Balderson. I, I would think that, I mean, I guess you might see him because Ohio seems to hold like a special place in his heart. But on the other hand, they, Republicans have a lot more congressional districts in other places that they'd probably be better served spending their time and resources in. So I don't you know, you kind of think through it, and obviously this is just prognosticating and speculation, but I basically think it's going to be essentially the same result, and it's all going to come down to organizing. Yeah, and I, I think the one wild card would be what Rich mentioned, though. I mean, we've talked about it, like the student vote and all that, and how young people are feeling. Is this a change election for young people to get back into the game or not? That's, but, I mean, young voters are unreliable. There's no way to say, oh, yeah, of course they're going to the, turn the out. Youth, or, you can't rely on I know, the, the, those uh, lackadaisical youth. You know, there is one group of voters that's pretty reliable, and I haven't looked at this yet, but what I've seen in elections that aren't a presidential election year, if there's a big levy issue on a local school, that'll really drive up turnout in particular areas. And I haven't looked at this, but it would be interesting to know, are, are there local issues that would drive people to the polls in some of these less populated areas of Muskingum County and, and Morrow County and, and Richland County that are very strong Republican that's going to bring people to the poll in addition to this race? Then the, I guess the other thing we don't know is this... Uh, Governor's race going to get people excited. Uh, um, it seems like the Senate race is a little fizzling on excitement at this point, but maybe that'll change. But I mean, are there any other factors to get people out there? But but oftentimes it's odd. Sometimes looking at past elections, you say, "Why did this county have a huge turnout?" And then you realize it's one of these smaller counties in Ohio that has one or two school districts, and they both had a big school levy on the ballot. That's another good point about this, though, is that this is you know, like Andrew said, it was a very special election, and that means that it was the only election that was happening, so everyone was laser focused on this. Um, do you think that like? 
I guess I asked the question, uh, what side is going to be able to keep that laser focus on? You know, are Danny supporters going to say, like, we need to keep laser focused on this because we're going to win? Or um, do, you know, do Troy Balderson supporters kind of like say, oh, breathe a sigh of relief, like, oh, we got it. You know, it's what happens to the presidential party every year. That's basically what happens. They win the presidency, and then there's a little bit of blowback because they kind of think, oh, we got our guy. Okay, we can take this next one off. Do Republicans end up taking the actual midterm off itself while Democrats kind of stay like, um, you know, in the zone and keep going? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to say. And I, I guess some a lot of it's going to depend on what happens between now and November. But mm. uh, you have to assume that Democrats are pretty pumped up and angry, um, you know, and so it's always easier to be mad at something and be motivated by that but than it is to sort of once you already got the car, like, what do you what do you do with it? I'm, I'm you know, if you're a dog chasing a car, you catch the car. So. Um, yeah, I mean, you would think that the, the enthusiasm sort of momentum would be in favor of the Democrats, but the more people that show up to vote in this district, just because of the way it's made up, you have to assume it's going to trend a little bit more Republican. There's this theory out there, too. Say, say the Supreme Court nomination. Does that go through? Is it is it going to happen in October? Is that going to, you know, rally up one side or the other? Or any who knows what with the Russian investigation or whatever? But but we forget in the context of that, we, we always say this November election because that's election day. But but voting starts in October. Mm. Well, well ahead of you know, well ahead of that, and a lot of people turn in their ballots, and <laughs> maybe that doesn't affect turnout as much, but might affect you know how people vote one way or the other if there are swing voters out there. And so this election is a lot closer than November. One of the things that I thought was really interesting about this election, and this was an observation that Alex Burns from the New York Times I think articulated really well, and that's basically the Republican messaging in the 12th district started off on Troy Balderson, cut your taxes and balance the budget, and you know, Troy Balderson has grit and he's a good guy and just kind of a positive anodyne kind of message. Well, they've got, you know, apocalyptic very quick. The their mail pieces showing cops like basically kicking down your front door and seizing your guns. Um, you know, Nancy Pelosi, of course, made a very liberal appearance and, and uh, was very popular on direct mail pieces and stuff like that. They started talking about abortion. So it's basically these negative campaigning tactics on, on really big wedge issues. So. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if um, moving forward, if Republicans even bother starting off with like the tax reform positive message, or if they're just going to kind of go slash and burn negative and try to bas- basically make a base play like throughout the country. So I guess, you know, it's not clear what the best strategy would be, but uh, I thought that was really striking about this race. I'd be curious about the political brains in the room, Andrew and Seth, on this one. On one way, you hear nationally, you keep hearing, oh, this was a this was a district that Trump won by 10 percentage points, and look how close it is. All the Republicans should be scared. And I said, and I'd say, well, wait a minute. This is an open seat. This isn't Tiberi running who had established himself there. So is, how much does this translate into the other seats? So that's one way to look at it. Is that, well, maybe 10 points is kind of overstated if it brings it down. But then the other way... I don't know how to answer this, but people that aren't like us and, and those who would take the time listening to a political podcast, how many people really know who their congressman is or congresswoman or know about a candidate? Are they really just voting Republican or Democrat? So I don't know. I guess you can make that argument either way about wh- how much a 10-point swing means. Well, I think what's important to kind of take away from the 12th district itself is that you know, these special elections, they don't necessarily point to the topple of one party. Like, it's it's not, nece- you know, it's not a given that 
everything's going to be just upended and there's going to be this, you know, swing of, you know, 60 seats or something like that. Um, yeah, that's pr- probably not going to happen, like, frankly. But what you are seeing is you're seeing a trend to where, you know, where, yeah, you know, if T. Barry had run for this seat again, he's probably safe. He's an incumbent. He's been there a long time. But what you're seeing is um, some of those more marginal districts, you know, uh, Andrew touched on this a second ago, that there are something like 70 more competitive districts than this one in the country. That's 70 seats. And this one was decided by this close. Now, granted, you know, they could laser focus on this and be like, hey, this is for all the marbles kind of thing, even though the, you know, the winner of this race is only going to serve for about, what, five months. Um, but when you when you start seeing that sort of shift really taking place, that's when you start getting worried about, maybe you're not worried about a plus 11 district, but you might be worried about a plus two district. You might be worried about a plus five district even. And if you haven't, you know, once you get enough of those seats, well, that's enough to push it over the edge. get capital letter it's the must-have daily read for state house happenings five mornings a week cleveland.com provides a daily intelligence briefing filled with succinct timely information it's perfect for people businesses and organizations that care about decisions made by lawmakers the governor and all of state government from breaking news to rumblings in the rotunda if you're not getting capital letter you're missing out for more information visit cleveland.com slash capital letter That's cleveland.com slash C-A-P-I-T-O-L-L-E-T-T-E-R. Andrew, you brought up a good point a second ago about the messaging in this race. And, you know, I noticed it actually the day after the election, Steve Shabbat came out with a negative ad against Aftab Purival. And it seems like that is really the only... Uh, sort of tactic that has worked in some of these races um, is just to completely go negative. Uh, do you think, I guess I'm thinking that we're, that's basically the strategy we're going to see now is go negative, pound negative, go as hard as you can and just constantly do it. Um, what do we think of the efficacy of that kind of um, strategy, um, especially in some of these swingier districts? I think, you know, if we're just talking about Ohio, I mean, we have pretty much zero competitive congressional districts. And so, uh, if I'm a Republican trying to hang on to those 12 seats that they have right now, uh, you're not really making a positive argument for yourself because you have to just basically assume that your average voter in that district is inclined to support a Republican. What you have to do is present the other side as being a, a, an unviable or an unacceptable alternative. And so in Shabbat's district, for example, um, AFTAB is, uh, has, we were talking about this, very high name recognition within the Hamilton, party, Hamilton County part of that district. But there's Warren County, there's those other outlying counties along the Ohio River who have no idea who he is. So he has a chance actually to define him. And, you know, so the AFTAB's commercial says, like, my name's Meet Sunshine or whatever it is, which it does. But their ad from from Shabbat was like, it might might mean sunshine, but he's shady, you know. And so mm-hmm. it's, it's very, uh, it's dumb and, you know, it's kind of glib and stuff like that. But they do have an opportunity to just try to event immediately define him in a negative way. And I, I expect to see that play out across the state. I guess I'm curious. I, I don't see it necessarily working all that well, though, when you need to be able to pump people up to keep you in office and all that. I think it actually runs the risk of sort of turning people off like, well, OK, we heard the negative things when you were, you know, saying them for eight years or however long it was. And now you're in power and it's still just the negatives. I mean, I think that's one reason you saw, 
you know, tax cuts, they just didn't work in the 12th district at all. Nancy Pelosi, I think you can make an argument that maybe it kind of did, but not really. I mean, when you consider the gains that O'Connor made, um, I'm going to guess that the thing that really pushed him over was probably the John Kasich endorsement and maybe the Donald Trump visit coming. I mean, but John Kasich might not endorse in every race, and Donald Trump, sure enough, is not going to get to every single district in the country. I don't think it's a great move to just go full negative, but I, it might be their best move. You know what I mean? Mm. So, I mean, it's just really, it's a matter of, uh, I guess, uh, you know, opinion, or I guess we'll have to see what plays out. So, uh, as we mentioned, Aftab down in the first district, Aftab and Shabbat, that's one of the that that's probably going to be the next target for Democrats in this state to kind of flip a district. Uh, I, I did a piece that looked at some of the other races that could be in play. I kind of want to get your guys' opinion of them. I'm looking at that race down in the first. I'm looking at uh, Dave Joyce versus Betsy Rader up there in Northeast Ohio, uh, kind of stretching over to Ashtabula, Geauga County, that kind of area. I'm looking at Mike Turner down in Dayton against Teresa Gasper. And um, I think even this district going forward, the Ohio 12th, all look like they actually could feasibly be in play. Now, Rich, you did a big project on gerrymandering a while ago. I'm wondering what you think of the voter profiles of those districts and if there's, you know, anything to glean from that. Well, you said the districts that, that, that you mentioned there had some had strong Democratic areas, but they were designed to be overall Republican. I mean, you're talking about like part of Dayton or on the eastern suburbs of, of uh, or, yeah, eastern suburbs of Cleveland, not in Cuyahoga County, but to east of there, so there's potential there. But, but the, when they when they did this, it, when when the Republicans had full control back in 2011 and drew these maps, what they used uh, to decide what would be a safe seat was you know big big profile races like say you know, presidential races and so forth, like McCain and so forth. So they were going on history. Now it's a different Republican Party now. The, uh, the, those Republicans. That would pre-Trump, it's a different Republican Party. So I guess that raises the possibility of a dynamic change, say, in these suburban areas that we've seen, because they were basing on past election results and what the party had been like for 10 or 20 years to, to draw the district. So I guess that opens up a possibility. It's still a huge hurdle to overcome uh, to to flip one of these districts, because they were designed to be as safe as safe could possibly be at map drawing time for 12 Republicans and four Democrats. It, it's interesting to me when you go through and list that. I'm going back to the non non uh, incumbent running. Is uh, did the Democrats do something wrong not to be uh, considered in your list of competitive districts of um, you know the Renacci's former seat to 16th? So uh, looking at you know. I think on paper, that should be a competitive district. And but it I, was the first time it ran with Betty Sutton. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think if you look, though, you've got Anthony Gonzalez, kind of a hometown hero who, you know, came back. He's got some celebrity about him. People know who he is. And he's been able to raise a boatload of money. Um, you look at some of these other districts. You look at Danny. Danny was able to raise a lot of money. You look at some of these other special elections. They were able to raise quite a bit of money. You look at other some of these other districts I'm talking about. All the candidates in that race, they can raise some money. Um, the interesting thing about the 16th is the Democrat in that race just cannot raise any money. I think to date she's raised like, I think in the, I'm sorry, in the second quarter, I believe she raised $21,000. And $21,000 is probably just not enough for you to win a congressional race, especially when your campaign owes, you know, you another like 30. But is that a failure of the party not to not to help prop her up if she's not raising on her own when I'm looking at like say the surprise a couple of years ago in Virginia with Cantor or whatever, you know, you get these candidates come out of woodwork and again, are people voting or they're voting on national issues and there's a D on the ballot and an R. It just seems like this one's been ignored. 
Yeah. I guess it's kind of that age-old debate, like how much is the party necessarily supposed to do versus how much is the candidate supposed to do. Actually, if you look at a lot of these special elections, the party hasn't done a whole lot in any of them. I mean, the DCCC did come in, you know, kind of late to O'Connor's campaign, but most of it has been kind of the campaign organization itself is doing it. Yeah, I, I wrote about this a little bit last year when the primary was kind of shaping up in, in Ohio 16 without any obvious frontrunner on the Democrat side. And what I found then was that the state party was kind of stung by what happened in 2014, where they basically cleared the field for a bunch of candidates, namely Ed Fitzgerald, who ran for governor. Well, Fitzgerald lost by a historic margin of 30 points, right? Somewhere around there. Um, and so uh, the then party chairman was basically uh, deposed and they replaced him with David Pepper, who said that, well, we're going to not be heavy handed with these districts and these races. We're going to let candidates kind of let the voters decide, let the candidates you know emerge and let chips fall where they may. So they've been very reluctant to get involved. Um, and then uh, locally, the Cuyahoga County parties had some organizational issues for a long time, which includes the corruption scandal and the aftermath. But also, I think that they focus a lot on um, we have a very Byzantine system of ward leaders and we have like 58 suburbs, all of which have their own Democratic club and stuff like that. So I find that the the local Democrats sometimes get a little bit more concerned about their internal politics than they do kind of about some of this more like, you know, meat and potatoes, organizational kind of stuff. So the net effect is that we had a candidate go through without really raising any money. And now that we're in the general, um, I mean, I'm not exactly sure if it's uh, the book has been written that, you know, we, we don't know for sure that somebody won't come in and help her out from the state level. From the national level, again, I think Ohio doesn't really benefit from the fact that we've got congressional seats in California and Pennsylvania and mm -hmm. Texas and places like that that are probably a smarter play for them. So, um, you know, maybe at some point uh, I'll do another story basically sizing up the fact that, hey, like uh, the Democrats basically seem to be wa waving the white flag in this district that should be competitive on paper. So, but yeah, I mean, to answer your question, Rich, I think it's a failure of organizing from the parties. Um, and then uh, I guess, you know, there's, there's blame to go around with the candidate too. I'm fascinated by the success, apparently, at least on the fundraising side and the votes so far through the primary of, of Gonzalez too, though. Okay, he did play football at Ohio State, but he wasn't the biggest star in the world. He wasn't the quarterback. It's not like he was a multi-All-American. He was good enough to go on and play in the NFL, but he really had no tie after here. After he left Ohio State, he's California, moved, moved back in time to just this year to sta establish his residency to run. And like I say, he wasn't like the quarterback. That's, right, and it's like, it's like LeBron player. James was, running or something. Yeah, he, he yeah. was like, um, I don't know, who, who the third or fourth player, the fourth player on the Cavs last year. He, he, I don't want to throw out a name because people <laughs> will draw comparisons. But, but he wasn't star number one, two, or three, but he was a good player. Um, but he, he's been able to have the success that we know of so far both at the primary and as you said in the fundraising yeah he, he's raised money i mean he's definitely a not an invincible candidate or anything like that it's just you got to put somebody up against him who can actually run a viable campaign yeah when he's he's outraised or 10 to 1 or something at this point that's why you know just all those things kind of added up it makes that district look very much not competitive right now but kind of broadly though um you know last week we had an episode basically kind of sizing up the year of the woman in ohio and that's just one of those things that is it's a bigger force than really in any one individual race and so with these three congressional districts um at least uh that let look winnable for democrats on paper maybe um, you know, there's Turner's district, Joyce's district, and the 16th district. There are women candidates in all three of those. Mm -hmm. And uh, Gasper and, and Raider have both raised a good amount of money, enough to be competitive and just run a, a viable campaign. I, I really think that 
you know, I just can't see 16 becoming competitive with the spending levels where they are. But if there is this big uh, force of, of women voters out there, I mean, that's going to be one of those storylines where maybe the between the women factor and some of the suburban qualities of those districts, maybe that's enough of a macro play to actually help them push them across. I think to add on to the kind of year of the woman argument, you could also add uh, Brad Wenstrup's district down there, given, you know, in certain scenarios, you could, I don't want to say that we should right now. Um, it's basically the eastern half of Cincinnati, but it does stretch into a little more conservative kind of area along the river there. Um, but it does have a woman, and not only you know Jill Schiller is running down there, um, and not just a woman, but a former Obama administration official. She worked for the Office of Management and Budget. She's one of only two um, congressional candidates in the state who we endorse. So uh, you know that that could play a factor. Although that district right now is probably uh, um, you know out of bounds. I, I will say I would be borderline shocked if any one of those three were to to be beat. You know, you look at somebody like Steve Shabbat, who's not the highest profile guy. Um, he's not necessarily somebody who gets out a lot. Um, even somebody like Bob Gibbs, who's pretty well known. Um, he's a former Farm Bureau guy, but he's not a, an energetic campaigner or anything like that. Well, so, um, but with Turner, he's a former Dayton mayor. He's on TV a lot. Uh, he looks the part of a congressman, basically mm -hmm. like central casting. Um, he's on the House Intelligence Committee. He's very involved with military issues with Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Obviously, um, military right retirees are a huge uh, factor there, and they're people who vote. And so I think Turner's good. I mean, Dave Joyce, um, he's a former county prosecutor. I feel like that's a profile of the kind of person that people tend to know just throughout the years because, you know, you're a county prosecutor. You get to do the drug bust. You get to do the murder cases and stuff like that and kind of just work the district. Um, and then Wenstrup obviously uh, had the, the situation where he uh, rescued, literally saved people's lives in the, during the congressional Republican mm -hmm. baseball game practice and just got a lot of profile from that way. So I, I just think the profile of those three candidates is pretty compelling. When you, when you add that to the demographic makeup, it's hard to see them being beat. Yeah, let's be clear that uh, Democrats should not win any of these districts, frankly. They, they shouldn't win. A, yeah, they should not goes win back a single to the gerrymandering one. thing. Yeah. They, they are by design made for Democrats to lose these districts. But the fact that they are being competitive, I mean, or that they look competitive like they could be, um, is kind of one of the more fascinating. I mean, if you'd asked me a year ago if any of these races were even going to be kind of on the level, like, hey, maybe we should be paying attention to these. I would have said, no, you're crazy. There's no reason to. I mean, these, I mean, Rich probably knows better than anyone how these are carved up in a way that it just, it doesn't lend itself to a close race. But now all of a sudden, since we have um, not just other special election results, but then even results from within our state, we can see kind of what Ohioans, how they voted in certain demographics. I do think it puts, like, especially that first district down there, Steve Shabbat's seat, I think that is... Um, it, it would not be a shocker to me if that one flipped. I think any of the other ones would, if it's more than one, I think it would be very surprising. And I think that would signify, um, you know, even worse results nationwide uh, for Republicans. It, it, it would take a massive blue wave. I guess that's really kind of the crux of this debate, right? Is the blue wave going to come here? What's it going to do? Yeah. You know? but the whole like red wave thing is just really stupid. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. I mean... There's, there's zero evidence of that. Um, I'm 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 pretty confident in saying no. We're probably not going to see a red wave, um, at least nationwide. I mean, you you might have Republicans do well in Ohio because it's kind of designed for Republicans to do well right now, as far as the congressional races go. Um, but the question is, like, okay, if there obviously there is some blowback. We saw that there was blowback in the twelfth. How far does that blowback go? I mean, at an eleven point district and it gets that close, well. 
what does it do in a seven point district like Shabbat's? What does it do in a seven point district like Turner's? What does it do in a, I believe, um, uh, uh, Dave Joyce says it's something like a five point district or somewhere around there. Uh, what does it do in those districts? And I, I guess the real answer is there's no way for us to tell until the ballots are counted. But So what do you make of the fact that after the uh, unofficial election results were announced and Balderson was declared the winner that President Trump decided to spike the football and take credit for his victory? Um, it, it, like I said earlier, uh, I've been a little bit puzzled by some of the end zone dancing that Republicans have been doing, although obviously you have to take a win where you get one. But do you think that, that Trump made a difference in that race, Seth? If he did, I don't. I don't think he could have made. I don't think he made a huge difference. Um, but again, in this race, maybe a huge difference didn't matter. Maybe a small difference is enough to kind of turn someone. I personally think that John Kasich probably helped out a little more that eleventh hour endorsement because, um, you know, he was able to keep those margins in some of those suburban districts. Uh, I guess you've got more voter profile than I do. That Trump kind of kept steady and whatnot. But did his thank you note know, get lost? When um, Balderson was thanking everybody? I did. Well, Kasich's did. But I see, I, I guess from a psyche standpoint, I guess I see maybe somebody who was teetering. Maybe they voted for Trump in uh, 2016, and they're one of these voters who are teetering like, oh, you know, I you know, held my nose. I didn't want to vote for Hillary Clinton. I wanted to vote for Donald Trump. But, you know, two year, or, you know, a year and a half on, like, I don't know, I think I might have to vote for this Democrat. And, you know, that, that person who is also a John Kasich voter sees – Kasich come out and say no this is the guy and I think that could have you know allayed some of the fears that they might have had those kind of on the fence voters which I think we can obviously tell there were on the fence voters because this race was decided so close so I, I it's really hard to say I don't think he whipped his voters up into a frenzy or anything to get out there and vote um, but it might have made just enough of a difference to matter yeah and I, I tend to think that the big effect that he had was just making people aware that there's an election going on because mm -hmm. it, it's really asking a lot of people to you know vote in may they actually voted for both of these candidates twice because of the weird dynamics of mm -hmm. uh, filling an unexpired term right before the general so people had already you know done a lot there and so to, to get people out again and some of the issue too, I guess, is, is letting people know what district they live in because these these districts are drawn in a way that's it's really mm -hmm. hard to tell. I mean, you know, in Cleveland, I bet, you know, when the, after they redistricted and stuff like that, if you were to ask um, a lot of people, you know, who's your who's your representative? People probably still say Dennis Kucinich, even though he's been out of office for ten years. Mm -hmm. But uh, so it's it's always kind of difficult to figure out exactly where you are and. Um, it even confused uh, the Board of Elections in Franklin County about where they were. They right. had to correct and had people placed in the wrong precinct. But right. So and then, you know, it's the summer vacation and all that stuff. So all of those factors kind of played where it'd be easy for people to just kind of sit this one out. And I think by Trump doing what he does best, which is uh, commandeering the conversation, getting media attention, that kind of stuff probably, you know, helped, uh, like you said, even if it's a marginal difference, still encouraging people to vote well, and, and enough to make difference in a close race. Once all the votes are counted, this may very well be a win of fewer than a thousand votes. So it's not hard to imagine that he could have got a thousand people to show up out of a, yeah. an election where there are two hundred thousand votes cast. But at the same token, I guess maybe he could have gotten a, uh, some Democrats to come up and say, "I'm tired of Trump. I got to stop this guy too." Right. So I don't that's, know. That's kind of been what I'm wondering is because you do see such a fervor, I guess, among uh, you know specifically the Democratic Party. I don't want to necessarily necessarily say all Democratic voters, but among the Democratic Party, um, that I I think it probably kind of offsets a little bit. But then you do have you know the governor come in, and I think 
you know, the the Democratic Party has kind of been backing off attacking the governor a little bit, specifically because Danny O'Connor and the Rich Cordrays of the world have really been sort of angling for that voter very openly. I mean, Rich Cordray is basically begging for Kasich voters to come over to him. And, uh, you know, Danny O'Connor was doing the same thing. Um, one thing I do think that is worth pointing out in a couple of the districts that we talked about, specifically in Mike Turner's district and Dave Joyce's district, is they have a little, you, you saw Troy Balderson really hug the administration um, during his race. Um, you know, Mike Turner and Dave Joyce have actually been one of the more kind of vocal Republican critics, or two of the more vocal Republican critics of the president. Both of them didn't vote for the uh, uh, health care repeal. Both of them have been pretty quick to, um, you know, condemn the president for things like Charlottesville or anything like that. Relatively speaking. Relatively speaking, yes. We're not talking about like profiles and courage here. Yeah, yeah. Um, Among Republicans, I should say. Um, And so I don't know if that'll play any factor at all. I think, like Rich said, you know, not many people know who their congressman is, so it Maybe it doesn't make a difference at all, and I'm thinking too much about it. But uh, I do think that if they have the argument to make is, oh, I'm the I'm the independent Republican, which is you know maybe what people are looking for, um, they might be able to kind of uh, uh, stave off some of the uh, wave. So uh, you mentioned earlier the thank you note that Troy Balderson forgot to give Kasich on election night. I just sort of as an aside, apropos of not a whole lot. Um, but talking, you know, you prompted me to think about this when you were talking about them kind of laying off Kasich a little bit. Um, Bob Paduchik, who ran Trump's campaign in 2016, uh, ran Rob Portman's Senate campaign um, before that. Uh, now he's the co-chair of the Republican National Committee. So he's definitely had a pretty fast rise, even though he's been a player in Ohio politics for a long time. Retweeted somebody's observation on election night that Balderson forgot to thank Kasich. And I thought that was really funny. So I just wanted to say that. That's all. All right. Uh, any closing thoughts before we wrap up? Well, I have a closing question for you, Seth. Okay. So t- tell me about the beer and p- pizza situation at the O'Connor party. Oh, that is uh, that is one thing that Jeremy and I did note is that uh, there was a massive amount of pizza at um, O'Connor's party. I didn't get any, of course. You know, we don't take those things. You're but such such a paragon of integrity. Seth. I am actually. Um, but I w- but Balderson apparently had like bacon wrapped dates and those kinds of things. Ooh. You know, so yeah, very classy food. However. Balderson did have the cash bar, whereas Danny O'Connor had kegs and a full wine list and all that. Hashtag free stuff, right? Yeah, I, I feel like he may have gone back in time and uh, found um, a junior year of college me and decided that this is what was going to be on the menu. So maybe he was just tempting you, you know, wanted to put your journalistic integrity on the line. It that, was like, that it could was like have a been. specific challenge for you. I believe I succeeded, though. So in, in fairness, though, it was Bud Light, so it was easy to you know, resist. So in sense of that, that old question for voters is, who would you like to have a beer with? Uh, I guess if I was a voter, I'd like to have a beer with somebody that's giving it to me. Or you could have a beer with me. There you go. <laughs> All right, thank you, everyone, for listening to this election recap. We will be back to interviewing regular guests next week. And as always, thanks for tuning in to Ohio Matters. Mm-hmm.